this episode of Stuff That Matters, we're joined by Dan Nash, founder at Human Trafficking Training Center. After serving 27 years in law enforcement, working patrol, narcotics, violent crime, and anti-human trafficking, Dan had a revelation that completely changed his outlook on the epidemic that is still a major issue in the U.S. and worldwide to this day. We talk about his background, some of the misconceptions he became aware of, the stats and key numbers, the experience which ultimately changed his perspective and view on human trafficking. We dive into the intersection between human trafficking, drug trafficking, and trafficking crimes as a whole. Dan also shares what kind of services the Human Trafficking Training Center offers and how far their reach has expanded. Although this is one of the heavier discussions and topics we've had since the podcast's inception, it was incredibly interesting and insightful. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we say thank you. You can also watch full episodes on YouTube. Now, here's Dan Nash. All right, stuff that matters. We are so welcome to have joining us today, Dan Nash, the founder at Human Trafficking Training Center. He's served 27 years in law enforcement, working patrol, narcotics, violent crime, and anti-human trafficking. Very interesting discussion that uh, we're looking forward to today. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Wait, well, why don't you just start telling us and our listeners just a little bit about your, your background, your story. Um, I know it's hard to just, you know, 27 years into a three minute succinct story, but just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing now, but also kind of where you came from. So um, after college, I became a Missouri State Trooper and uh, I did that for 27 years. And basically within that time frame, I had, um, you know, basically four little careers within a career. Like every law enforcement person, I went to patrol at first, um, spent several years doing that. And then I became a narcotics and vice detective. And that's really where I started developing a little bit of an interest in it. We didn't even know what human trafficking was. We didn't even call it that then. Right. Um, but vice related crimes. Um, and honestly, we we did a horrible, horrible job. Um, we were arresting the girls. We were patting ourselves on the back and, you know, we were doing our part for God and country. And and we did, we didn't understand. We didn't have any training. We didn't know. And then later after that, I ended up um, moving to a, a violent crime unit where we did mostly officer-involved shootings and homicides. But within that, uh, I started tinkering more with human trafficking and started developing more and more of an interest in that and and really continued to mostly fail for about 10 years. And because there wasn't, there wasn't even training back then, there wasn't a mentor that you could go to. There wasn't anybody. Um, I remember going to someone one time and asking them, Hey, what do you think about this? And they're like, I don't know anything about that. And, and they were my boss at the time. And, and I said, well, do you have any advice? And he was like, you're a detective, go detect. I'm like, that's it. That's, that's all I'm getting. That's, that's your, that's your words of wisdom. Right. And, um, and then later, eventually um, we developed a full-time human trafficking unit. And I was fortunate enough to um, be the first person in that and was able to kind of build that and then I was the enforcement supervisor of the statewide attorney general's task force on human trafficking. So we did that. And then when I retired, um, I um, started the human trafficking training center 
which has honestly been just just an amazing experience. And now I've been able to train about 10,000 police officers across the country. And even just this year, we've trained 3,400 police officers, I think, so far. And that 3,400 police officers has found 127 trafficking victims after they left the training. So that's that's that makes you feel pretty good. So you became a, a trooper when I'm not trying to age you or date you. 1995. So 95, and you know, tell us like what what was the instruction? And, and again, back then, obviously, so you said trafficking. I mean, this is mostly dealing with prostitution, and you're going to hotel. And again, I'm I'm just a therapist, so I'm going to ask some really dumb questions. I promise. Over the next 45 minutes. Um, I said my law enforcement experience mostly comes from speeding tickets and parking tickets. So, but just just educate us on like what was the, you know, when when and how did you usually come across that population of of people, young women, young adults, um, and what were you instructed to do? Was it just arrest and get them out of here and get them off the street? And that's when we pat ourselves on the back. Pretty much, um, our section was narcotics and vice, so we probably spent significantly more of our time working narcotics, right? Um, but while we were working narcotics, that goes hand in hand with human trafficking, right? Traffickers use narcotics to control someone. Um, I mean, think about it. It's a great way to control another person. You now are there not only their trafficker, but their drug dealer. Um, you get someone addicted to, you know, drugs or alcohol, you can really help control them. So so we, we saw that. But mostly what we did on the, the vice side was you'd have complaints from a truck stop or complaints from a certain area of town. Um, and we would, you're right, we would go in and arrest everybody. And, you know, we would we would take them to jail and we would let them spend the night on a cold, hard bench and think about the decisions that they were making and hopefully make better decisions. And you're sitting and, you know, later now I look back and go, what the heck were we thinking? How did we not understand that there's no decisions to be made? These people are being trafficked. There's, they're under third party control. Um, and, and, and I think the crazy part is. You know, we would see movies, everybody would see movies like, you know, old Clint Eastwood movies from the 70s where the, they have the pimp there. But we didn't really even understand what that was. We didn't understand this guy's really controlling this person. It was like we just thought, oh, well, they must want to do that. Right. They must want to be with that pimp. They must want. And, 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 I, and, you know, looking back now, it's really even hard for me to fathom how ignorant we were. I mean, it just it's it's honestly just embarrassing. Mm. So it sounds like, you know, the the individuals that you were arresting in the past, you're now seeing obviously in a different light, right? That they're more they're they're victims of a crime themselves rather than executing or conducting a crime. Am I hearing that correctly, Dan? Yeah, and and that's and that's pretty well known now. So there's all kinds of academic research out there, and and most of the academic research is somewhere between 90 and 94 percent of persons involved in the commercial sex industry are under third party control. So we're talking, you know, more than nine out of ten. Um, and then you know, just just one of the analogies that I will use when we're training is I'll ask people, is there anybody in this room, anybody in this room that when they were 13, 14, 15 years old, thought to themselves, you know? Gosh, please, Lord, please, Lord, when I grow up, I just want to be a prostitute. I just want to have sex for 10 or 15 minutes a day. I just want to be able to get STIs and UTIs and have horrible things done to me and have things inserted inside of me and, you know, have a life expectancy of 34 years and, and get addicted to drugs and alcohol and all these things. And no one ever raises their hand. Right. So common sense would tell us nobody wants to do this. 
And the academic research is all consistent with that. So you, you, you realize pretty quickly that most of these folks are under third-party control. The problem from a law enforcement perspective is still to this day, we just don't have a proper screening tool to look for force, fraud, and coercion, which is what the law requires, right? So historically, the screening tool is, hey, Matt, are you being trafficked today? Is someone making you do this against your will? And when they say no, which most of them will, we go, okay, well, then I guess you're a prostitute and you're going to jail. And that's that's our screening tool. And we still, many agencies still use that today, whether you're a local agency, a state agency, or a federal agency. Don't think that they're, that they do any better um, because they don't. Um, they're, they're just doing that still to this day. So what we do is teach law enforcement that, that people don't want to do this. And we teach them the proper indicators, the proper skills to use. And then we teach them how to use a proper screening tool. Have you guys then, have you, uh, yeah, I'm mean, one of the, uh, I was talking before we started recording that um, in North Carolina, we set up a program for adolescent girls and it was in conjunction with um, a large urban county and, and their DSS and then a nonprofit that worked in sex trafficking. And so the theory was that we're going to get a lot of um, girls who are coming from these kind of sex trafficking situations. But we quickly found out, well, nobody identifies as that, right? No, nobody or rarely does somebody self-identify as, yes, I am currently involved in this. So we had to get really good at um, reading between the lines because obviously if somebody's being coerced or, you know, and honestly, it's, um, I mean, th those young girls were, were truly brainwashed. I mean, they were also just truly brainwashed and, and deprogramming that took a long, 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 long time. Um, so yeah, you ended up having to like look for all the, you know, these 50 different things that then added up to this one thing, even if somebody never actually was able to say the words, because even after maybe a year's worth of treatment, they still weren't able to say the word. They still didn't want to admit it to us and maybe more so not admit it to themselves that that relationship was coercive or their 27 year old boyfriend and their 15 is a bad guy, you know? So, um, yeah, for sure. And, and there's yeah. ways, and you're hundred percent right. Most of them are not going to just tell you, although we have created a system, we have we created something we call the special victims methodology. And what we see is when we utilize this mechanism um, of how to contact and actually talk to a trafficking victim or a possible trafficking victim, we can move that 7% disclosure rate, which is about where law enforcement is nationally, up to about 50%. But um, it's not going to take place in five minutes. It's going to take place over, you know, generally a few weeks. But um, once you start that process with the first time you meet them, that's, that is the key. It's got to start from the first time you have contact with this person. And then you can, and so, and there are some of them, I'm not, not going to say they're not. Some of them will tell you in 20 minutes, but that's pretty rare. Um, most of the time it's over the course of a week, two weeks, five weeks, six weeks, whatever it is. And then they'll kind of tell you, but you can also get other stuff. There's tattoos out there that are common indicators. There's their phone. You get consent to search their phone and you understand what to look for, what the terminology is. Law enforcement can figure out if someone's trafficked in 10 minutes from just looking at their phone, even if they don't say a word. So, I mean, there are things to do. We just have to teach law enforcement how to do it. And historically, law enforcement wasn't doing those things. So, so Dan, let me ask you this question, if I may. Coming from a... A position in an organization that works with juvenile juvenile kid you know kids under the age of 18 primarily does the training that your 
organization offers police departments, does it also do the same with departments of juvenile justice? Is there a need there in your eyes or is that something you guys are involved in? Um, yeah, I'll leave it the there. Answer to that is, the answer to that is yes and yes. So they need to be trained to CPS or whatever you call it in, 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 in individual states, right? Social services, child protective services, whatever. They don't get any training either. In most states, they get like a 30 minute video. So right. they don't know. Um, juvenile officers, juvenile justice folks. Uh, we trained um, all of the juvenile justice people in the Kansas City area, all the juvenile officers. They found five trafficking victims like in six months. I mean, once you train them, they'll find them, um, just like the police will. Right. Probation parole is another good place that you will find it um, right away. Right. Um, so you can get this. And yes, we invite all those folks to come to our law enforcement training. We invite law enforcement, probation and parole, um, social services, you know, CPS type services, uh, juvenile officers, juvenile justice folks, um, Department of Corrections folks. And then we also include all the advocates. So if you're in an advocacy organization like you guys are, we would allow you to come to our, our training. Um, anybody that's working with trafficking victims, whether they're juvenile or adults, um, we invite all those people. And and some of the stuff that we teach is as simple as, and this will you know, be right in your lane. So if you're under the age of 18, and you engage in some type of commercial sex. In other words, you exchange something, something of value in exchange for a sex act. Doesn't matter if it's a jacket, a place to stay, drugs, food, whatever. That's automatically trafficking. There is no such thing as a juvenile prostitute. It can't happen. It yeah. not happen. If you exchange anything of value with someone under the age of 18, it's automatically trafficking. And you don't even need a third party. Period. So, so let me ask you that right there, <clears throat> building on that a little bit. In that scenario, if it's considered trafficking automatically, I think I think where we, uh, boy, I can. What's the response from those involved with the kid? Not just juvenile justice, not just law enforcement, but just because it's trafficking, sometimes, and I'm going to back it up, Dan. This is going to make sense in a second. We, we used to get referrals from, I mentioned that we have somebody from the FBI that calls us and they've, they've gotten, you know, they've gotten a child or an adolescent who's the victim of trafficking and they want to admit them to our treatment facility, but they need to admit them quick because they can't contain or detain a juvenile against their will if they haven't committed a crime or there's no reason to. So my question becomes, is there... Um, is that if they're deemed being the victim of trafficking, is there a way to save themselves from those bad decisions? You know what I'm saying there? Because I heard it in the voice of the FBI. To get a kid into our program, it's not the same day. There's often a wait list. And there's oftentimes like mental health um, requirements and documents that need to get signed. And it can take weeks in the, even in the best case scenario. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, just because a child is a is trafficking, is there a way to get them into care or services immediately so they don't continue to be trafficked? We found that there was a barrier there. Does that make sense? It it, it, it depends on the state, okay. um, and it really is going to depend on the services that are provided or are, are in that state, right? There are some states that have have a pretty robust um, services for both juveniles and, and adults, and there are some states that don't. 
I would say at least half don't. Um, right. Now, state and local police, we we have the authority to take a child into protective custody at any point if we believe that they're in danger or, or anything like that or they're being abused. Um, and then Child Protective Services gets involved. And we can keep that kid for a substantial amount of time um, until they get to a, a shelter. The law is a little bit different for the, the federal government. And I, I think we would all agree that, well, let me say this. Most people that are proponents of the Constitution, I think, would all agree that we don't want the federal government to have a whole bunch of authority that we don't want them to have. And we have given most of that authority to the local and state police and yeah. not federal police. So right. there is a mechanism in place where you can take a child into protective custody with any law enforcement that is state and local. Um, there are certain things we have to do, like we immediately have to call Child Protective Services. But it, there is there is no choice. Once law enforcement takes that child into protective custody, social services has no choice. Um, nobody has a choice but to help this child once law enforcement does that. And that is uh, is a really good option that our authority that state and local police have to be able to help this child. And we do that all the time. Dan, can you um, just maybe hit us with some stats, like like zoom out a little bit and just give us the lay of the land that, that you are an expert on now, the last 15, 20 years of trafficking. What do the numbers look like? Obviously, it goes probably without saying that we don't actually know what the numbers look like. So what are the numbers that we know? Um, cause I'm sure again, so many young or so many women still go unidentified. Um, but again, just maybe how big of a problem is this and what are the numbers and the data tell us? So you're, you're hundred percent accurate. And I'm glad you, you, you threw it out that way. We don't know anybody that's going to tell you that they know this or they know that is, I don't, I don't know where they're getting that from. They, we, there's no way for us to know, um, anywhere from 30 to 50 million people worldwide is, you know, it's kind of the number. Well, think about that. There's that 20 million people gap. We don't, you know, we don't really know. Um, even here in the United States, we don't really know. What we can tell you in some of the best numbers that are out there, it is human trafficking is for sure the second largest criminal enterprise in the world behind drug trafficking. And we know that those two particular things, drug trafficking and, and human trafficking, are significantly ahead of the other types of organized criminal activity. So drug trafficking, um, human trafficking, significantly ahead of everything else. We do know that here in the United States, about 10 to 15 percent of men make up almost all the demand. So it's really a, a small group um, historically that are making up most of the demand and most of, and driving most of the money um, here in the United States. And then and then we do know um, while we know that most of the folks coming across our current southern border are being um, smuggled and not trafficked. We do know that some of those are being trafficked. There's no doubt about that. We're, we don't know currently what, what those numbers are, and we may not know for years. Hell, we may not know ever how many people are coming across that border that are that are going to be trafficked. Do we know that that is going to increase trafficking? Well, of course. Do we know that most of those people are not trafficked, that they are smuggled, but they're very susceptible to being trafficked? 100%. So those are probably the three big things that we know is that it's really big. It's increasing substantially. And, and probably a, a, an, an easy example would be the illicit massage business industry, which is mostly Chinese organized crime. Um, in New York and California, there are more illicit massage businesses than McDonald's and Starbucks. And across the across the United States, over the last eight years, 
I think it's eight years. Uh, the illicit massage business industry has grown 46%. <laughs> I mean, so, it's substantial. Yeah. So I want, I want to camp out there for a second, which I never thought I'd say I want to camp out. At, uh, I don't mean I want to camp out at a list of massage place, but I want to zoom in on that because that is even for uh, somebody who's not in the space or not even around the space. Um, like I know which massage places aren't massage envy. I can drive down. I can drive Charlotte right now and I see the thing that says, you know, sun spa and it's tucked in a, you know, um, old crappy outlet mall looking thing that's got trucker parking and it's not hard to see what's what right like um even going back to like um the robert Kraft stuff that happened with like even like normie people kind of got exposed to some of that it's like everybody knows what these are why is that so hard to just shut down i don't i don't understand that it's a, it's amazing to me that that's growing that that industry that it seems so obvious is growing when, you know, advocates and advocacy and knowledge should be growing. That would seem like it'd be good. That's kind of shocking to me. So a couple of reasons. Number one, there has been two specific approaches that law enforcement has used over the years that have been completely unsuccessful with this. And because of that, most of the time law enforcement gets frustrated and just quits even trying. Um mm -hmm. One of those is what we refer to as a slash and burn. And then other, the other one is a long-term conspiracy approach. So I, I just had this conversation um, in, a, in a state with a federal agency and they were so proud um, because they had, um, they were getting ready to close down five illicit massage businesses and they were going to arrest like nine people. And that's good work. I haven't, I haven't that's hundred percent good work. That's great work. Right. And so I asked them, I said, well, how long did it take you to work this case? And they were like, well, three years. And I'm like, OK, so during that three years, how many more illicit massage businesses opened up in that state? And they're like, well, we don't know. And I happen to know because I had kind of done my homework before the meeting. And I said, well, that would be 52. So you're oh. going to close down five. That means they are a net 47. And I said, you understand what we're doing here? They are scoring touchdowns. We are kicking field goals. And then we're looking at the scoreboard going, it's 49 to 12. What's going on? And, and a Chinese organized crime is perfectly fine with that. They are perfectly fine with netting 47 more IMBs. Each IMB has between two and four girls working at it. So that's, you know, right there is between 100 and 200 victims. And each IMB on average across America is worth about a million dollars a year. That's 47 more million dollars to them. They're perfectly happy with that approach. Let us kick field goals all day long. And we're losing. We are losing when we do that. The cartel has the exact same business model they know they're going to lose some drugs at the border they know they're going to lose some drugs in texas and oklahoma and and arizona but they're going to get most of it through and because yeah. of that they're going to make they're going to make billions of dollars a year and they win oh okay sorry those numbers are st staggering oh these numbers are st and again i just again this is just a dumb normal person talking but i'm just like just just station two people outside i just, I just don't understand that again because I, I think there's some um so we have we have we have something now that took years for us to figure out and honestly it was the most frustrating thing i've probably ever done in law enforcement was to try to figure out how to battle these illicit massage businesses um okay. and now we have something that we created called the four corner strategy and um it's it's successful we were the 
we tried it in Missouri. We're the first state to try it, and it worked here. Um, now New Mexico's doing it. Texas is doing it. Kentucky's doing it. Um, Georgia's doing it. New Jersey's getting ready to do it. I'm pretty close, I think, to getting Virginia to do it. Um, there's several other states. Delaware's doing it. There's several other states that are getting on board. And what we were seeing is we were able to not only dismantle these organizations, but we're able to create an inhospitable environment for them to function, and and which creates future, you know, not allowing them to do business. And so we're trying to take that all across the country and get all these states on board. Southern Florida is getting ready to do it um, pretty soon. So um, we're, we're, we're seeing that and we're building upon that. But there are some inherent things that make these things really difficult for us. Um, you know, most people think, oh yeah, we're gonna see these, these Chinese girls are coming in and they're on a, they're on a, um, a ship on a, in a cargo box because they see that on Law and Order SBU and they think that's true. And that's not what it is. They're literally flying into JFK and LaGuardia or LAX, and they literally walk right over to U.S. Customs and say, I'm from China. I'm a Christian. I cannot practice my religion. I'm here seeking asylum. Um, and we give them a court date. And the current court date right now in New York is 2032. Are they going to show up in 2032? Well, no. They're they're stuck in Des Moines or Omaha or Montgomery, Alabama or Cheyenne, Wyoming doing sex acts at 10 or 15 guys all day. Of course, they're not gonna show up in nine years for their court date in New York. Um, you know, so there, so there are some issues that America has to get around to be able to stop some of this, um, this stuff. And it wasn't always that way. Um, the Chinese used to bring these girls across the Southern border back in the day before about 2012, but they quit doing that because in order to do that, who they gotta pay? The cartel. Cartel. Well, why pay the cartel when they can use our own immigration laws against us and just bring them in for free? I mean, they're not stupid. They're just, you know, they're they're criminals, but they're business guys. And they figure that out pretty quickly. And they use our own loopholes against us. So that's how these girls all get in. They're, they're all asylum seekers. Is the uh, U.S. the largest consumer? And maybe that's the wrong word. But I would imagine we're the largest consumer of human tra where the where the where the ones consuming human trafficking uh, victims correct yeah. gotta be when you say we are you talking the united states yeah um some of that's true some of that's not true it's um western europe's a giant consumer our friends to the north in canada are a giant consumer the middle east is a giant consumer um any of these places that that have um you know the financial means um our giant the uk they, there's tons of trafficking in the uk um i mean there's a lot it, it, it's where the money is it's where the demand yeah. is is there is there a global conversation around this you know a, beyond local and beyond the grassroots efforts i mean does the un have this on an agenda amongst <laughs> okay when you say oh. a conversation if you're talking about people that get together and have lunch and discuss it yes they have those all the time if you're asking are we actually doing something do we have a plan do we have a strategy the answer is no of course not we don't and we have a lot of lunches we have a lot of lunches and we go to a lot of cocktail parties there we go <laughs> make ourselves feel better for two seconds so my wife working at new hope is to provide students with support in the social emotional and academic aspect of their life. 
Uh, why for being here? It's because these kids need somebody to hear them and see them. My why is I've been in the communities for so long with the residents. Now I get the opportunity to work with the families and meet the families. My why is I like to help. I think I was born with that in my nature, so I like helping. I help everyone in the building as well as our residents and their families. My why is a, because I want to create a safe environment, a comfortable environment for my students to be able to learn and grow. I put smiles on kids' faces that I love seeing every single day. I am at New Hope because this is a place that inspires change for young kids and for adults. I'm here in New Hope working to make a difference in these young girls and boys' lives, giving them an example of what a role model should be and leading them and guiding them in the right direction. My why for being in New Hope is the residents. I love the kids. It's awesome. My why is seeing the change and the process being made. It's just awesome to see them come in, not want to be here. Then they get here, it's like being a family. Dan, tell us, you know, walk us through maybe your the, the first start of your evolution, because obviously, again, you look back, I mean, you use the word embarrassing, which again, you know, I would give you some grace. We don't know what we don't know until we know it, right? And then once we know it, we have a choice to, you know, walk a different path or not. But obviously, you know, tell just walk us through how was that? How did that start that you actually reevaluated what you were doing and how you were doing it? Because there's a lot of people out there who get exposed to new information and never reevaluate how they do things like like to really reevaluate, you know, 15 years of doing something one way and then going a different way. Um, not everybody does that. Not every human being does that. So I, I am curious if you could get into a little bit more detail. What were some of those aha moments that you had initially? There, there was basically one incident that really started it for me. Um, I had a tip about some prostitution taking place in a certain part of town. And I went there and I set up some surveillance and I saw this guy come across. He's about 40 with this girl. He's probably about 20 walking across the parking lot. And I went and I talked to him and I, and I did exactly what I knew how to do, what I was taught to do in the academy. I, I separated them. I started asking law enforcement questions. Where are you coming from today? Where you, you know, where you live, where you work, how do you make money? How do you know each other? All this kind of stuff. And he, he was a criminal. He was a felon. Um, he was not very friendly and cooperative to me, but you know, that's to be expected. Um, her on the other hand, she's like a 20 year old girl. And the more I talked to her, the more belligerent she got, the more cooperative she got, the more unfriendly she got. She was cursing at me. She's throwing the F-bomb at me. She's just, you know, whatever. And I got frustrated and I kind of just let him go. I said, okay, you're free to go. Right. Um, a couple months later, I get a call from local law enforcement and they're like, Hey, do you know this girl? I'm like, yeah. And I just talked to her a couple months ago and they're like, well, we just found her today. She's dead in a bathtub in one of those rent by the week hotels. And she's clearly committed suicide. And on the lip of the bathtub is a photo of a small boy, infant child. And they said, we went and made notification to the mother. And the mother said, yeah, I'm not surprised. She said, my daughter was molested from the time she was seven until she was nine. She never told anybody. Um, in school, she wasn't doing well. She was running away. She, her grades were bad. She wasn't getting along with her other classmates. In high school, she got involved in drugs and alcohol. She started dating older men. She became, you know, that girl. And eventually she left home at 17, quit school. And I didn't see her for two years. And two years later, I get a call from social services and they say, hey, we're at the hospital with your daughter. She just gave birth to a child, but that child tested positive for methamphetamine. So we're going to have to remove him. Will you come down and take custody of your child? And she runs down to the hospital. She takes custody of the grandchild. She takes that photo and she gives it to her daughter. Her daughter checks out of the hospital a few hours later and she never saw her daughter again. And 
she committed suicide in a hotel room in a bathtub. And the reason that kind of stuck out for me is that she was being trafficked by that guy that I yeah. saw in the parking lot. And I mean, I had her and I just didn't do anything about it. And I kind of decided I never wanted to do that again. And what we're doing is this is wrong. We're, we don't know what we're doing and there's got to be a better approach to this. And I just, so I kind of just decided we've got to try to figure this out. The problem was back then there was really nowhere to go. There was no, like I said earlier, there was, there was no training. There was no mentor. There was nowhere to go. So the only way to try to learn was to try to just do this and honestly screw it up for a really long time and eventually figure out some stuff that, well, that didn't work. Don't do that again. That didn't work. Don't do that again. And eventually over years, trying to figure out what worked, what didn't work and trying to come up with a plan so that I could help other people, other police officers, not have to go through what I went through of screwing something up and it really bothering you and not knowing what to do. I mean, that's really where it, it came from. And it was years and years of begging and pleading and trying to, to change the paradigm so that I could try to do things. And yeah, it was a process for sure. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I know that's not, um, that's not something you probably love to reflect on. Um, but it sounds like a pivotal moment for you, which then has become a multiplying effect for good um, from that tragic situation. And again, that, that, when you're telling that young woman's story, um, I mean, I, I was starting to get emotional thinking about all of the kids that um, I've worked with that I still work with now that have that exact same story. Um, and it just, um, you know, again, we, we often say goodbye to our kids um, by the time they hit adulthood and, Sometimes we hear from them, sometimes we don't, but just the fear, if we don't, if we don't get to them now, the fear of what is likely ahead of them, um, especially between those ages of like that 18 to 23, 24 is just um, terrifying. And I'm sure um, there's been kids that I've worked with that had that same story and outcome. And it's just, yeah, it, it sucks and it's heavy as hell, but it also motivates you to try to do something. So. Dan, I'm curious. Oh, sorry, Mike. No, Patrick, you go ahead. No, uh, I'm I'm curious. Uh, know a little bit more about the intersection between drug trafficking and human trafficking. Uh, I think you know, for some people, maybe uh, there are some misconceptions, but certainly that there there is a, a connection be between the two. Uh, whether it's you know, a simple exchanging of services, uh, so something something that simple. Uh, can you talk more about how closely those two are related? Um, and so, you know, the experiences you've had. So traffickers generally um, will, will engage in other types of criminal activity as well. So whether that's drug trafficking, gang activity, drive-by shootings, robberies, sex assaults, whatever it is, they're, they're engaging in other criminal activity as well. It's whatever they, they need to do to make money. Their only motivation is to make money. That's it. And, and, and I think people get really confused. And, and you hear terms of predator and trafficker. And I hear people that use those interchangeably. And, and that's just that's just a lack of training. Right. A predator is completely different, um, different motivation. They're motivated by sexual gratification, not money. A trafficker is only motivated, but only motivated by money. And a predator generally is does not have this long criminal history They're They're the guy that's married with two point two kids. who's a soccer coach. Um, the trafficker, on the other hand, is a criminal, long term criminal. And we law enforcement knows who they are most of the time. We may not know that they're a trafficker, but we know who they are. Right. So. 
there's something in the in the trafficking world called forced criminality. Forced criminality is where a trafficker forces this person to commit crimes in order for their profit. Where that we usually see that is prostitution, right? Um, but they will also tell these girls, hey, you owe me a $3,000 trap for the day, a quota for the day, right? And I don't care how you get it. You can have sex with 15 men today, or you can use these stolen credit cards and go buy me iPhones, or you can use this stolen checkbook and go write hot checks, or you can transport my drugs from point A to point B. Um, and part of the reason they do that is number one, to control that person, but also to get them involved in other criminal activity so they can say, now you'll never be able to go to the cops because you're a criminal too and you're going to go to jail right. too, right? So not only are they making more money, but, um, you know, they'll do that. So one of the survivors that works with me that trains the police, she's in Florida and she went to prison for a fraudulent use of a credit card device who her trafficker was a Latin King gang member who was forcing her to do now, I guess technically she chose to do the credit card fraud versus have sex with 15 men today, but she got arrested and ended up going to prison for 18 months. Right. And she was a trafficking victim and she's literally sitting in the Department of Corrections and, and she tells the story and it's so good when she tells it, how 18 months later, her gang member trafficker got killed by another trafficker and they come to her in the prison while she's sitting in there in the Florida Department of Corrections and say, hey, we're looking into your this guy's death and we're thinking he's a trafficker and we're kind of thinking he trafficked you. And, and she says, she looked up at him and I probably shouldn't say this because you probably get in trouble for this on your podcast. <laughs> but she said, she looked right up at him and she said, no shit. Yeah. And she sat there for 18 months. Right. Wow. So there is this correlation between, drug trafficking and human trafficking and sex trafficking and all this other criminal activity. And like I said earlier, it's super common for traffickers to get their um, victims addicted to drugs and alcohol because it's mm -hmm. easy to control. Um, and, and let's be honest. If I was having a, if I was being forced to have sex with 15 people today, I'd probably do drugs and alcohol too. It sounds like it's, you know, it's, or it's very well organized, right? These networks, these criminal networks of, trafficking individuals and i mean some, some of them are and some of them are more loose so the street gangs are a bit more loose right because that's their kind of you know mo the chinese organized crime is very very networked of all of them that is the most comprehensive and the most networked the russians are pseudo you know and the, and the cartel um, they're all trafficking people they're kind of pseudo networked now what we refer to as the big five and there's more people in more groups in america that are trafficking than the big five but this is generally what takes up a majority, and that's Russian organized crime, Chinese organized crime, the cartels, the street gangs, and friends and family. Friends and family, unfortunately, it makes up a third to 40% of all trafficking in America. Uh, and that's like the husbands, the fiancés, the boyfriends, the mother, the father. Um, you, know, that's, you know, that's the friends and family thing. And, and I would assume a good number of those friends and family are, and this is why I'm asking, are already involved in some sort of organized crime or is that a false assumption on my part? Right. I, I, I've seen probably most of the time. It's not that it's like the wow. husband who is just trafficking his wife and that's, you know, he's making money off of her or the girlfriend right. um, or the mother who's just, I've seen the mother just, I, I've seen the last case I worked on a mother. She was trafficking her 12 year old daughter and that's how she paid the bills. Yeah, I got I got a couple more. Well, 
I'll, I'll start with this one. I think I know what your response is going to be, but I still want to, I still want to hear it. So um, it feels like there has been some chatter recently in the last three or four years of, um, you know, more around maybe pornography, but I assume pornography, you know, all of these things are starting to blend together, particularly I'm sure with the, with the internet, right? Pornography and trafficking and sex work and all these things are starting to kind of bleed together. But I've heard, you know, dialogue in society kind of talking around um, not stigmatizing sex work and people taking pride in sex work and things like OnlyFans and all of these kind of new technologies and viewing it as a positive. I've always viewed that with a lot of skepticism and cynicism. I, I get what they're trying to say, but it's like almost trying to take the victim narrative out of all of this. Um, what's your reaction to that? And what, what's your response to that? If, if I'm making sense, if you've kind of seen some of that same momentum. So let's, let's take the term sex worker first. I think that's probably a good place to start. Most people don't understand and they think that is like some kind of a positive term. But in reality, survivors hate that because it's being trafficked is not work. Right. And we know from research that most of these folks are being trafficked. Right. Um, secondly, the term sex worker was created by traffickers. <laughs> They're the ones that created it. So when you're using the term sex worker, you are basically pushing the trafficker narrative. And the mm. trafficker narrative is there's nothing to see here. Just some sex workers, just some working girls over here. There's nothing to see here. Right. So now has that term sex worker been, I don't know if you want to use the term hijack, utilize, overtaken, whatever term you want to use by folks with a different narrative, a different, um, you know, ideology, so to speak. Yes, they have. Um, and those generally, those same folks are behind, you know, legalizing prostitution, which would be the biggest mistake on the entire planet if they were to do that. There is no place anywhere in the world that they have legalized prostitution that trafficking did not increase. And the re and it's common sense. The reason that trafficking increases is because, number one, the demand will increase and people don't want to do it. So trafficking has to increase because traffickers have to now go find more victims to be able to satisfy that demand. It's happened in every place on the planet that they've done it. In Australia, in Germany, even in the U.S., in the four or five counties that are legal in Nevada. It's happened everywhere. So the idea that we're going to legalize prostitution and make it better is the same insanity that we told people, we're going to legalize marijuana and the cartels are just going to pack up and go back to Mexico. That's not what happened. And it's not what's going to happen. If you legalize prostitution, you stop law enforcement from being able to investigate that. And our only tool, our only window is prostitution. Because prostitution is illegal, that is our way in. Now, we teach, do not arrest it for prostitution. Don't do it. It's a sign of possible trafficking. So, so don't arrest for it, but use that as your window in. The police can't investigate just because we are nosy and we want to investigate. We have to have a reason, right? So use prostitution as your window in. And then once you get in there, you look for forced fraud and coercion. You screen properly. You don't arrest for prostitution. You try to get those girls out and get those girls into a shelter and a safe place. And then you arrest the traffickers. That's not rocket science. And whenever I have set on, and I've had a couple of debates with people that are in the pro-legalization mode, whenever I've used this argument, they get all angry because they have no defense to it. And then they'll come back and say, well, it's just capitalism. We need to get rid of capitalism and we need communism. So I'm like, oh, okay. So really behind the scenes, what you're saying 
is you want capital or you want to get rid of capitalism, not prostitution. And then they get even more mad and then they don't want to talk to them. So even if, yeah, even if there's well-meaning, well-intentioned behind some of that dialogue, your expertise and experience would say it's a disaster. Don't go in that direction. The direction needs to go in, keep it in law enforcement, but make law enforcement better. It yeah, let's just train it. the police. Let's just, because the initial argument always is, well, we don't want these girls arrested. Well, I agree with you. I agree with that movement on that particular point. Let's just train the police properly and then we won't have the girls arrested. But the traffickers will get arrested. Right. Why not arrest the traffickers? Is that not a good thing? (laughs) New hope. Our name. Our promise. Founded in 1987 by Dr. George Orvin, New Hope has been a beacon of hope and healing for youth across the country for decades and is committed to expanding our impact across the Carolinas and beyond. At our flagship 150-bed treatment facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, we provide 24-7 residential behavioral health care to male and female youth with significant mental health challenges. Our team of behavioral health care experts deliver comprehensive care in a safe and structured environment. When a youth enters our care, they are often at the lowest point in their life. They've endured years of trauma and rejection. They have accepted a narrative that their life is hopeless, that they are destined to repeat a cycle of despair. That's where we come in. We are here to provide new hope to every youth in our care. New hope through therapy that breaks down walls and builds up their self-worth. New hope through teachers and education tailored to their unique needs. New hope through round-the-clock medical staff ensuring their physical health. New hope through recreation, play, and new experiences that develop life skills. And new hope through the healing power of positive relationships with every one of our team members. We break cycles. We rewrite life stories. It's our name. It's our promise. We are New Hope. So, so Dan, I wanted to ask this question, really. I have young kids, right? I got a 13, an 11, an 8-year-old. They have access to the internet. We try to police that best we can. You had used and made the distinction of predator versus trafficker, right? Right. So help me as a dad, and there's probably a bunch of parents who will listen to this. From your experience, the vigilance we need to have around internet access, what to look out for, any any telltale signs of my kids, any child um, becoming a victim through, through the internet, through social media, whatever it may or may not be. So the days of stranger danger that, you know, I learned when I was a kid, I know I'm probably dating myself with that, but um, those days are kind of not the same anymore, right? Stranger danger now, you know, back then when I learned it was the white, the the guy in the white van with the panel van. Yeah. He's got no teeth in his head and a big ponytail and a puppy and a bag of candy and you know, whatever this, this right here is stranger danger. Now this right here, and you let this into your house every single night. And on that is that same guy in that white van talking to your kids. 
So I, what I tell people is if you really, really want to protect your kids, don't just, just don't let them have a smartphone. And here's what, I, here's what I have, what I think is really interesting. I don't know of anybody, and I know a lot of people across America that work human trafficking full-time. I don't know of anybody that works this full-time that has kids that lets their kids have a smartphone. They just don't. It's kind of like big tech executives not letting their kids have social media. Gee, you think they know something? Just like all the trafficking people don't let their kids have a smartphone. You think they know something, right? They see it every day. So there's other options out there. There's the Gab phone, G-A-B-B. That's a really good one. It's a really good option. You're, it looks like a smartphone. Um, your kids can text message you. They can call you. They just don't have access to the internet from it. They don't have access to apps, you know, all this other stuff. There's other there's devices you, and security you can put on your phone. Canopy is a good one. Bark's a good one. There's several others out there. But let's be honest. These kids are going to figure out a way around that. Right. And and any parent that says, oh, I'm going to search my kid's phone every day. Yeah, you're going to do that for about a month. And then you're going to get busy and you're going to forget to do it. And we're not going to do it. And then these kids are just going to be left on their own. So to me, if you really want to protect your kids. And I also have a lot of parents that say, well, my kid is really smart and really savvy. Well, they're so smart and they're so savvy. We won't let them buy alcohol or tobacco. We won't let them have a driver's license. We won't let them buy a gun. We won't let them vote. We won't let them do all these other things. But they're so savvy and smart. You're going to trust them head to head against a trafficker and a predator who right. are very manipulative and much older and much more wise to the world. Really? You're going to do that when you don't want them to buy booze or tobacco or vote or get a driver's license or buy a gun. Seriously? All right, Mike, no phones. No phones. No phones. You better tell your kids. about throwing mine get, out right now. If they, get, if they get mad, you got to give them Dan's email. So you know, if you can, let, let's spend some uh, a minute just plugging your, again, back to your work at the, at the training center. What's y'all's mission? Where are you going from here? Just, just tell, and, and again, how can, if people want to support what you're doing, how can people kind of get plugged in at all? So our mission at the Human Trafficking Training Center is just to provide skills-based human trafficking training geared toward law enforcement and those other folks in the human trafficking field that need it. Like, you know, like we discussed earlier, the juvenile officers and um, victim advocates and all those folks. But it's really geared toward law enforcement because they're the tip of the spear. Yep. Um, and, and we see that it works immediately when you do this. Right. So that's our goal. So um we we are continuing to expand and 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 really we're at a point now where we've had to expand even more because so this is what october 5th 4th october 4th um i'm literally booked right now until july of 24 so um and we're training all over the all over the country i was just on the phone this morning with canada and canada wants us to come up and do some trainings up there so um and we're doing this all across, you know, the U.S. and Canada mostly. We do do some stuff overseas, but honestly, I've shied away from most of that um, for a variety of reasons. More so, I think we need to get our own backyard fixed first. And yeah. number two, um, there's lots of places overseas that I just don't think are the right fit to go due to a variety of reasons. Um, law enforcement may not be in a position like law enforcement in the U.S. and Canada is. Um, there's there's a different number of other reasons. So I turned down some of that overseas stuff. Um, and we're just trying to train as many people as possible. How can just anybody get involved? Well, when we first started in South Florida, this is like the perfect story. When we first started in South Florida, there was one lady down there 
and she has her own little business. It's her, I think a couple of other ladies and they, and they, they run a salon, they run a hair salon and they wanted to get involved and they wanted to bring training to local law enforcement because their police didn't have it. And they raised a bunch of money and they called us and they got us down there and we went down and we did a training and we trained like a hundred cops and the sheriff liked it so much. Then now we go back twice a year and train deputies until we get 700 deputies trained. And, and the sheriff's department said, Hey, we like this so much. We'll foot the bill from here on out. And we just want this. We, we realize we need this. Right. That was one lady, one person that this is know anything about human trafficking. She's just, she's, she's running a little hair salon, but she knew she wanted to do something. And so I kind of talked to her and she, gave her some, you know, talking points and some tips on what she needed to do. And then she went out and did it. So you can get involved by, you know, donating money to us to help support trafficking, training to law enforcement. You can set up a training in your own town. I mean, I've got people that do that all the time that call us and say, hey, what would it take to get you to come to my city, my town and train the police? Um, so you can reach out to us and we'd be more than happy to help you do that. Is that, you know, Dan, obviously this is like, Again, this is heavy stuff. This is maybe one of the heavier topics that we've we've covered. Is yeah, does, yeah. in some ways though, the fact that you're booked out through next July makes me um that's a good thing, right? That, that feels like there maybe there's some like maybe there's a growing appetite for competence and awareness around this. I mean, what what parts of this are you what has you encouraged? What has you um yeah, what has you encouraged about the future state of this, if there are some things? So, so I am encouraged. And, and what I tell people is I think of right now where we are as kind of like the renaissance period of human trafficking. In other words, we're, we're at a point where we don't know everything clearly. We're still learning, but we're figuring it out and we're actually making some strides forward. I mean, we're teaching everybody from local police, local sheriff's department, state police, HSI. I mean, we're, we're teaching everybody right now. And, and that's a really, really good thing. And, and and the kind of the analogy that I like to use is domestic violence 40 years ago. 40 years ago, I remember, well, I, I, I'm not that old, but I remember in 1995 going to calls, and it was even still the thing then. I remember going to calls with older police officers that were about ready to retire and had been around <laughs> for years. And I remember going to a call one time with some husband that had punched his wife in the face, and she had a big shiner. And I remember that guy asking that 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 wife well what'd you do to piss him off right and um, i remember those days because i was there for the end of those days now that all started before i got in law enforcement but you know 40 years ago 50 years ago we treated domestic violence completely differently than how we do today completely differently now we look at it as you know battered spouse syndrome and and we're going to arrest the primary object you know um, assaulter <laughs> we're going to do all these things and we don't even think twice about it and right. i think that's kind of where we are with trafficking so I hope five years from now, 10 years from now, we're going to look back and go, remember those days when we did all this stupid stuff? Wow. Now we have all this and we have all this and everybody gets trained and everybody's doing it this way. That's kind of the way I hope we're going. And that's what makes me excited is, you know, 10 years from now, looking back when I'm sitting on my farm in the Ozark Mountains going, wow, we completely changed how we do business now. All right, Dan. Uh Wrapping it up, tradition on this show. Going to ask you now, give you a chance to, I guess, emphasize and hammer home uh, things that are most important to you that you want to convey to the audience, the listening audience, whoever that may be. So I'm going to ask you, what is the stuff that matters? As far as trafficking goes? 
Or as far as trafficking goes, it's it's all about training the police. If you don't train the police, none of it none of it matters because even if you train all the civilians, <laughs> even if you train everyone else in the world, everything will stop at the police. If the police don't know what to do, you can call nine one one all you want, and they won't do anything. So you've got to train the police. Dan, thank you. I mean, this is fascinating. Again, I think um, it's uh, it's daunting. It's um, it, it pisses you off to your core. I think it's sad. Like there's all kinds of things, but also it's um, it's encouraging. And and I love. I mean, clearly there was your story, your unique. You also have the credibility to go out and do this training, right? So you can't. I I don't think this training would land the same if uh, some social worker was doing it. So the fact that you have your story, you have your experience. Um, and then you're able to open other people's eyes that are in your shoes that probably have some of the same, you know, ten, you know, potential pushback, potential, ten, you know, all these things, but you're able to relate to them. Um, you're changing lives, it sounds like, and you're changing systems. And, and through the training that you're doing, you are changing generations of young people and their futures and their families. And um, I don't think that's hyperbole to say that. So that's, that's incredible. That's why it's an honor. It's, it's been an honor to talk to you. Um, and hear about what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. And thank you guys for what you're doing because you're you're changing lives too, helping all the people that you help, helping all these these kiddos that that need help. So you know you're we're all part of the same team. We all want the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, Dan. Man. Thank you. You can listen to this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch episodes on YouTube. And if you're interested in being a part of the New Hope mission, Please visit newhopetreatment.com for more information. Again, that's newhopetreatment.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.